Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. Pharmaceutical companies have long been the target of public criticism, presidential scrutiny, and legal recourse. From the opioid epidemic to the dramatic rising costs of life-saving medications, pharmaceutical companies stand accused of profiting while the public health of the country suffers. I'm Maria Sakalis, and today we are joined by Professor Liz McCuskey. Liz is a visiting professor in the Center for Health Law Studies, where she teaches a course on food and drug law and policy. Thanks for joining us today, Liz. Thank you for having me. So one of the biggest stories that comes to mind when we're thinking about big pharmacy companies and regulations um, took place earlier this year when the cost of an EpiPen rose to over $300 a pen. And that was not the first time that these life-saving medications have seen dramatic price increases at the hands of pharmaceutical companies. So can you talk about how that happens? Sure. Drug prices have gotten a lot of increased attention in the news, in part because the cost of healthcare in general is a top national issue, and the price of drugs contributes mightily to the overall cost of care. So it's not possible really to have a national debate about healthcare costs without having a debate about drug prices. The pharmaceutical market in the US exhibits a pretty profound tension between rewarding innovation for life-saving medications Mm -hmm. and really for medications for for daily use for all range of medical conditions and promoting competition. So protecting the prices that consumers will pay. The FDA regulates the safety and efficacy of drugs that are available in the US market, but it does not directly regulate their price. Instead, there is a complex regulatory overlap between the FDA's public health mission, the Federal Trade Commission, or FTC's, mission to promote competitive markets, and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's mission to reward innovation with patent protection. So what we have is novel, safe, and effective drugs can get 20-year patent protection from the Patent Office. They can get FDA approval to be sold uh, to the public. And then the patent gives the manufacturer a monopoly. They're able to charge whatever price they can get as long as the patent exists. So there are some recent examples of brand new, innovative, patented drugs hitting the market at shockingly high sticker prices. Those are often for really life-changing medications uh, or cures for diseases. Uh, So these are chemotherapy drugs, treatments for cystic fibrosis, which can run over $270,000 a year, and perhaps most famously, uh, the recent introduction of uh, Solvati, which is a hepatitis C cure. It's the first cure for a lifelong disease. That came on the market at $1,000 per pill. Oh, wow. Which over the course of treatment, uh, which only takes less than a year, the course of treatment is $84,000. But that's $84,000 to cure hepatitis C. So there's definite sticker shock for these innovator brand name drugs. But there's also a pervasive argument that these innovations, uh, the manufacturers who make these innovations, should be able to get back their research and development costs in bringing these uh, innovative therapies to the consumers. Plus, in the case of hepatitis C, there's an additional argument that curing the disease with this innovative drug is actually less costly over the patient's lifetime 
than treating the disease with older drugs. So that's how they can justify that sticker shock of $84,000 to cure it. Yes. So we've definitely seen sticker shock for brand new innovative drugs, and it's just shocking how much it costs. There are a lot of, there's currently debate and, uh, and some additional research on exactly how much pharmaceutical manufacturers need to make back mm-hmm. in research and development, uh, and it's, it is less than what they are actually charging. But the EpiPen price increase that you mentioned represents a different and perhaps even more shocking phenomenon because the EpiPen price increase happened after the patent had expired and generic drugs were already competing with EpiPen. Mm. So after the patent expires, other manufacturers can sell generic uh, versions of the drug. And this is an increase in competition. So if you have multiple manufacturers of the same uh, medicine, the price should go down for the consumer as they compete with each other. And the Hatch-Waxman Act of 1984 made it easier for generics to get approval through the FDA. So generics are more widely available than ever, and over 80% of the prescriptions in the United States are filled with generics. Hatch-Waxman actually has made over a trillion dollars worth of savings in the overall market for drugs. Wow. Um, So the presence of this generic competition is, in theory, supposed to bring down the price of the drug after generic competition exists. But the way that drug pricing works currently is so seemingly arbitrary and bizarre that it's produced some very dramatic and compelling stories about particular drugs price increases over the past couple years. Okay. Wow. So in the news, these uh, new patented you know, brand name drugs are introduced at shockingly high prices, um, but generic drugs and very old drugs, drugs that have been around since the 1950s, have also seen big price increases. So industry-wide, a pr- an annual price increase of up to 10% is kind of standard, but some bigger price increases over time have uh, made news. So the EpiPen got national attention uh, in part because so many people have allergies and depend on EpiPen to intervene with uh, its life-saving technology, but also because public institutions like schools uh, and hospitals have to stock the EpiPen okay. in case of emergency. So there's more public exposure to the price of that drug and more sensitivity, I think, to the change. Than some of these other medications that were you've also mentioned here. Yes, okay. exactly. So what is the legal recourse to prevent this type of price increase that you're talking about? And have there, any, have there been any attempts at reform? So there are, there are a few direct ways to attack price increases, and there are some indirect ways to attack price increases. Uh, and then there's the least effective of all, which is outrage without any reform. So uh, certainly EpiPen uh, sparked a lot of outrage when its price went up, despite that there was a generic competitor. Uh, and I think the most infamous recent example is uh, Martin Scraley, who was the CEO of Turing Pharmaceuticals. He's now known as Pharma Bro because of his general attitude. Um, Turing Pharmaceuticals took a 1953 FDA-approved drug and increased the price overnight from $13 to $750. Oh, my gosh. So that was outrageous. And in part, it was led by an outrageous CEO. So we have public outcry over the EpiPen increase and certainly over uh, the Daraprim, which is uh, Martin Scraley's drug, increase. 
the House of Representatives brought the CEO of Mylan in to testify and to uh, kind of you know ask her a lot of tough questions. And they brought Martin Scraley in as well. Um, those House investigations have not led to a change in the law. Martin Scraley, to almost everyone's delight, went to prison, but not for drug pricing. He went to prison for securities fraud. He misrepresented the, okay. uh, the value of his pharmaceutical company. So both of those medications, after the House testimony and after Martin Scraley's securities fraud conviction, are the same price. EpiPen is still $300 a pen, and Daraprim is still $750. Wow. So the indirect, uh, the, the direct ways are uh, largely litigation-based. So first, the antitrust laws prohibit uh, certain activities that harm competition. So the Federal Trade Commission and state attorneys general can bring antitrust suits against pharmaceutical companies who are taking anti-competitive actions. This could either be one company who uh, is, has done something to try to monopolize the market, something other than getting a valid patent, mm -hmm. um, or it could be two or more companies who have taken some kind of collective action or made an agreement that would fix their prices artificially high or agree that you know the generics are not going to sell their drugs uh, for a few years to let the patented drug have uh, a little more time of monopolistic pricing. So antitrust is one way to uh, remedy these actions that can harm or have harmed the market. Mm -hmm. um, there have also been some ballot initiatives in, uh, it, it's actually the same law introduced as a ballot initiative in California and recently in Ohio. Um, it's, it's introduced by an inter interest group and it is opposed by the Pharmaceutical uh, Trade Association. Uh, these were ballot initiatives that would require that the state uh, pay a certain drug price. In other words, they would ha the state would be by law required to pay no higher than the Veterans Administration price uh, for drugs in certain state programs. So mostly uh, drugs that the states are buying that they are going to give to prisoners housed by the state, uh, injured workers, and uh, a few other programs for uh, low-income people. Both of those ballot initiatives were defeated in California and in Ohio, in part because they're pretty poorly written, mm. and they uh, and the advertising on both sides was terrifically confusing, and so I think voters just kind of threw up their hands and said, um, said no. So Ohio's was actually defeated last night. We'll see if it's introduced in any other states. Uh, these two big defeats in which pharma spent over $100 million in advertising and the proponents of the bill spent half that much, um, probably will deter the ballot initiative from coming up again. So it would have okay. very limited effect, uh, but states could pass some of their own laws. Indirectly, it is uh, regulation of how third-party payors can negotiate the prices that they're going to pay for drugs. In other words, insurers deciding what price they're going to offer for drugs. Uh, those kind of regulations can add some counterweight to the manufacturer's ability to uh, raise prices and to charge really high prices. Okay. So is there anything else that the FDA can do to protect, to protect consumers against price fixing? So the FDA's uh, direct mission is public health. They're 
regulatory system uh, indirectly affects prices because the longer it takes to get approval of a drug, uh, the more money a manufacturer has invested Mm -hmm. before the drug comes to market, and they'll try to recoup those costs. So the new commissioner of FDA, Scott Gottlieb, uh, has been charged uh, by Congress with uh, modernizing the FDA approval system, but with a real focus towards promoting innovation. So the FDA is not currently working on anything that is directly related to pharmaceutical pricing, and that certainly is outside of the FDA's jurisdiction. But the FDA currently is working under the 21st Century Cures Act, uh, which is a, a pretty big grant of money to the agency to uh, streamline certain approvals, and in particular for innovative therapies, so to bring mm-hmm. innovative therapies to market with less uh, regulatory approval costs. Otherwise, the FDA has, uh, has no power to affect the price directly. Okay. FDA approval, however, gives a drug automatic access to Medicare and Medicaid payment. So again, indirectly, the FDA's approval enables a manufacturer to sell to Medicare and Medicaid, which taken together are the largest single payor of drugs uh, in the U.S. market. Okay. So switching gears, with the current status of health reform in the U.S. kind of up in the air, um, what changes might we see that affect the pharmaceutical companies? And then how will those possible changes then affect the consumer? Excellent question. So many things about the healthcare system and federal regulation of it uh, are currently up in the air. But with an increased focus on insurance costs uh, and ways to bring down monthly premiums and expand access to insurance, there has been widespread support in public polling among Democrats and Republicans for changing the laws that would enable Medicare and Medicaid to negotiate lower drug prices. So currently, Medicare and Medicaid are constrained by federal law in their ability to negotiate drug prices for FDA-approved medications. Uh, they can only do certain limited things to affect, uh, to affect the price and to exert any negotiating power with the drug companies. So uh, I think one thing that could pretty easily be uh, brought to the floor in a bill that should have bipartisan support and certainly has bipartisan constituent support is to change those regulations. Uh, Medicare is an entirely federal program and so changing the federal rules would, uh, would enable Medicare as the largest single payor to negotiate drug prices. Medicaid is a federal program in which states can elect to participate. States do not have to offer prescription drug coverage in their Medicaid programs, but almost all of them have elected to do that. So changing some of the Medicaid regulations as well might let individual states uh, create their own formularies. There is some concern uh, in letting states change the way that they offer prescription drugs because there is concern that states would exert influence over which drugs Medicaid recipients had access to. So it's a, it's a delicate health policy and economic concern, uh, but I think it could be uh, fairly easily worked out um, by creating some constrained ability for states to negotiate those drug prices. And currently, uh, manufacturers like to point out that hardly anyone actually pays that very high list price, uh, 
Mylan certainly points out that most people pay less than $50 per pen as opposed to $300 per pen after the negotiated insurance rates kick in. So their ne insurers negotiate lower rates, and then there's this whole system of coupons and rebates and other special discounts. And the problem currently is that those coupons, discounts, benefits, negotiated rates only benefit those people who have insurance that is good enough to negotiate better prices and the wherewithal and the knowledge to pursue further rebates and coupons on their own. So the most vulnerable people, those people with very few resources, and especially poor people in states that have refused to expand the Medicaid program, pay the absolute highest possible price for drugs. That has to change. There has to be uh, an ability to have consensus that this uh, pricing is not only unjust, but it is an artificial market and is something that is contributing to the high cost of health care uh, unnecessarily overall. Can you talk about what the potential impact then is of allowing Medicaid and Medicare to now negotiate those, those lower prices so on I, the consumers? Certainly. Uh, so there are, there are concerns, I think, on both sides of the issue for how the rules might change to enable Medicare and Medicaid, the government payor systems, to negotiate uh, the availability and prices of drugs. On uh, the consumer side, on the consumer benefit side, for example, uh, if the, the rules are loosened to allow Medicare and particularly Medicaid to negotiate with manufacturers about whether they will cover, it, that whether they will cover FDA approved medications uh, and at what price, the Missouri Medicaid program, uh, which has decided to cover prescription drugs, could uh, approach Mylan and say, we want to cover your EpiPen in our Medicaid program. We want to be able to pay for EpiPen for all of our Medicaid enrollees who need it. And we will use your competitor unless you give us EpiPens for $15 a pen. Or we will not use EpiPens at all unless you give us $15 a pen as our price. So uh, if Missouri Medicaid is able to have that kind of leverage with Mylan, and Mylan uh, say they meet in the middle and they agree to $15 a pen for Medicaid, then all of the other private insurers who sell insurance in Missouri can use $20 a pen as their negotiating starting point. So they're no longer starting at $50 a pen and saying, well, we'll give you 55 or 45. They're starting at 20 and saying we're gonna give you 25 or 15. So from that perspective, Medicare and Medicaid as kind of the low cost leaders, the, the insurers with the most leverage, could help set kind of ripple effects throughout the drug pricing, uh, through the drug pricing throughout commercial insurance as well. On the flip side, however, is the concern, particularly with Medicaid programs, that giving states too wide a latitude to exclude whole classes of FDA-approved pres prescription medications from Medicaid coverage as a leverage tactic could result in Medicaid recipients having unequal access to the medical treatments that they need. So if the, if the new negotiating rule is too loose, and it enables M Missouri's Medicaid program and the state legislators and administrators who run that program to, for example, uh, say, Missouri Medicaid is not going to cover 
contraceptives. It's not going to cover any FDA-approved contraceptives that they could approach the makers of those contraceptives and say, unless you give us an amazing price, we're not going to cover it at all. And if that negotiation results in the manufacturer saying, we leave it, uh, then the state has decided not to offer contraceptives to Medicaid beneficiaries. That is a, an inherently unequal access to medical treatment and is a really big public health issue that, uh, that poorly crafted regulations on uh, Medicare and Medicaid negotiating could actually produce. Well, Liz, we've really enjoyed our conversation today. And do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, it certainly has been a pleasure to be here. And it's been a pleasure teaching here this semester as well. In my food and drug law seminar, I actually have students working on papers on some of these most cutting edge pharmaceutical uh, market and drug price topics. So perhaps we can revisit it at the end of the semester uh, after they've turned in their excellent new research, which I'm sure will make uh, a big impact on this nationwide discussion. Thank you again so much. And listeners, tune in next time to the next episode of SLU Law Summations. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law.